Well, good morning, brothers. Just a few hours ago, I was in the Atlanta airport. I spent uh, about uh, 11 hours there yesterday. I just love that airport. <clears throat> and uh, it, was, it was hard enough to get there. I, I got an Uber driver from North Atlanta to get me there. And, um, and Atlanta uh, is even less prepared than we are for this. No sand, nothing. And uh, I asked the Uber driver as he picked me up, I said, uh, experience in driving in this kind of thing? He said, first time. <laughs> so um, we uh, went one block and uh, we were rear-ended. And uh, he said, uh, what do? I said, three numbers, 911, and I got to get another Uber. And I uh, hiked across the highway uh, with these shoes on. It's great, and I got another Uber, and then we eventually landed, got there, and, and uh, the, the line stretched from the sidewalk for the security, stretched from the sidewalk outside the terminal, around the baggage claim, into the atrium, if you know the Atlanta airport, and then around and around farther, uh, average uh, two-and-a-half-hour wait, and uh, got there in plenty of time for my flight that had been delayed nine hours. So, I'm just glad to be here. I don't know if there's a lesson, but uh, that's it. You know, go and stay away from Atlanta Airport. Amen. Let's go. <clears throat> we are going to uh, look at uh, the remaining part of Hebrews chapter 7. And I've said each time Hebrews is a difficult book, this will not be so difficult for you because we have been by now thoroughly instructed in the way uh, Melchizedek was preparing us for uh, Christ, our perfect mediator, high priest, and uh, how he was not that. And now the writer just wants to make extra clear. He wants to, he's driven the nail, he now he wants to clench the nail so that it doesn't come out of our consciences. So with an expectation to be fully encouraged by our perfect high priest, we turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 7, and we'll begin reading, uh, let's begin reading in verse 20 for context, but we'll just look at 23 to 28. <clears throat> and it was not without an oath, that is the better priesthood, was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That's where we left off last time. Now he has one more reason. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, 
separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men and their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, would you help us today, every one of us, to have it sealed to our consciences, this phrase, once for all, once for all, that the sacrifice has been made once for all, that we would leave with our heads held high in the heavens, not of our own achievement, but in the confidence that our, the sacrifice made for our sins, if received by faith, has been made once for all. We pray it in Jesus' strong name. Amen. <clears throat> uh, you need the, sometimes you need the right man in the right place at the right time. A friend of mine is, uh, was a veteran missionary in Haiti. He is Haitian. And he had built uh, quite uh, a missionary work, five schools and five churches and medical clinics. And, and because of the <clears throat> chaos in Haiti at the time, and Haiti, a beloved country to me, but it is always in a state of chaos of one kind or another, but this was uh, really uh, a desperate time and marauders were roaming the country and looking to steal and take, uh, pillage, whatever they could. So he knew he had to protect his people, uh, he had to protect the orphans, he had to protect the vulnerable ones. He had a wall, but uh, he knew that could be scaled. He needed, uh, he hated to admit it, he needed weapons, uh, at least to show, uh, show strength so that the bad people would be repelled. But how does a, a, a Haitian citizen, uh, a missionary at that, a man without any means, without any influence in the uh, corrupt government, how does uh, a Haitian man get guns uh, in uh, Haiti? Well, in God's providence, one of the members of our church who was an officer with a, a high-ranking officer of the ATF uh, was also, uh, he was, uh, had a heart for missions and he had uh, assignments in Haiti. And he became aware of this need, and uh, he, he just handed him uh, his business card. Randy handed him his business card, and he said, now, whatever you need, you just go to Port-au-Prince, walk into the, uh, the police department of Port-au-Prince, hand them this card, and tell them what you need. Well, he thought, I'm going to get killed. I'm going to get arrested. Uh, this sounds good, but, uh, but, but he got so desperate, he was in Port-au-Prince, and he went over to the sheriff's or the police department, and he said, um, "I need some long rifles to protect my missionary compound." And it looked like this, and he handed him Randy's card, and the policeman's eyes go 
biggest saucers. He said, follow me. He went to the, the, the locker, opened up the doors, uh, hundreds of guns, and he said, take your pick, anyone you want, as many as you want. How did he make it? How did he get access to that kind of power and influence? It wasn't on his own. It was he, he had the right man who occupied the right place of power, who was with him, albeit through his card, at the right time. That is the point that the author of Hebrews has been making about Christ. It's a point that he's going to drive home in these final verses that in order for us to be reconciled with God, in order for us to have the experience and the blessings of salvation in this life, in order to be guaranteed eternal life and, uh, and, and rescue from the judgment we are owed, we need the right man, the right God-man, who has been in the right place and is now in the right place, and the one who has come at the right time. There are six reasons that the author gives us in this passage that <clears throat> assure us that this is the kind of priest we have, the kind of Savior we have. The first one is uh, he addresses the problem. He addresses the primary problem that we had in the past, especially now, remember, he's talking to these uh, very religious Jews who were accustomed to making sacrifices. They had all of their lives as far back as they could, as they could remember ancestors had been taught that you go to the temple and you make sacrifices, and when you make those sacrifices, well, you've done what the law says, and you receive forgiveness of some kind, yet it doesn't last. You have to do it again. But you're doing what you're, you're commanded to do. That's all they knew. That was the best they had. They had to keep repeating it. It didn't relieve them in their consciences of their sin, but that's what they knew to do. It wasn't, wasn't perfect, but it was what they knew to do. And so now this author is coming along and saying, you know, all of that is gone. Everything that you have known before, every way that you have dealt with your sin, dealt with your guilt, that's gone. Here is a complete replacement, and this totally works. And you can imagine that that was hard to let go of. Some of you who have been addicted know what that's like. I don't like the addiction, but I am afraid to let go of it. Some of you who have been uh, depressed in the past, I don't want to be depressed anymore, but there's a sense in which I, I, I'm reluctant to let go of it because, because there is some familiarity about it. We talk to a, a abusive, abused wives sometimes. I, I don't want to be abused anymore, but I'm afraid to leave the relationship. Others of you have been accustomed to doing certain things, um, uh, engaging in certain practices that somehow alleviate you of your guilt, make you feel better, 
make you feel a little more righteous. And here the gospel comes along and says, you know, there's absolutely nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. Grace can only be received. And you say, I, it's hard to let go of that. Well, you can imagine how difficult it was for these Jews. But he's making this very simple point. You've got a problem. You have a problem because it never worked. And here is the point, here is the proof that it never worked. Not only did you have to keep making sacrifices, you had to keep getting another priest. The, the Aaronic priesthood was prescribed in Exodus 40. It says you are supposed to have a priest all the time. It's supposed to be in the line of Aaron. And so you, you never know where it's supposed to, you, you never have to doubt where it comes from. Uh, you, you just keep going back to that line and you get, the, but the problem is they keep dying. There's something like 83 high priests between the time of its inception under Aaron and uh, Phineas under, uh, we read about in the New Testament, 83. And after every one of them, after every one of them, you know, there was a day when they said, and now you are high priest, and then there was the day that said, he's dead. We got to get a new one. So he's, he's, he's helping pull the fingers of legalism. He's helping to pull, the, pull back the fingers of moralism and, and trust in outward works and good deeds. He's pulling it away to say, it never worked. It never worked the way God intended from the all time. It all, he always intended for you to be saved by grace. This was just an, an interruption in order to convince you that you can only be saved by grace. And now I'm telling you, there is no longer any earthly priesthood. He has been replaced by Christ. The problem was they had dead priests. The answer is Christ who lives eternally. The second issue is, the second reason that Jesus is a superior high priest is in verse 24. <clears throat> verse 24, chapter 7, he says, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And uh, we can't uh, go... Uh, much farther without going back to 22 and getting the antecedent for he, Jesus. Hebrew, the author of Hebrews very strategically uses over and over the name Jesus uh, because he wants to convey to these uh, Jews in particular that Jesus, the man, the God-man Jesus, perfectly answered their need. You know, sometimes you have uh, you've heard the, uh, when we get frustrated sometimes with, with doctrinal disputes in the church, we, we talk about, we allude to the time when, when philosophers or theologians argued about how many angels could dance on the head of a pen. And we, we chuckle about that. And uh, it, it is uh, somewhat funny, but the, 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 the reason for the argument was a serious one. The reason there was this debate about how many angels could dance on the head of a pen was because they were arguing over what kind of Jesus 
do we have? But the, the, the argument at the time was that if, <clears throat> it boiled down to sacraments, if, if Jesus is bodily present in the bread and in the cup, and so there were parts of the church that were saying, you know, he is, he is there. He is, he is physically there. He's physically in the bread. He is physically in the blood of the cup. At some point, it becomes that. And the Reformed theologians were saying, here's the problem. If you say that Jesus has a body that is ubiquitous, that's the, that was the technical term, means the body can be everywhere at the same time. If you say that Jesus has a body that is ubiquitous and it can be in Memphis and it can be in Singapore and it can be in Thailand all at the same time in the form of bread, then you no longer have a real human Jesus because bodies don't do that. My body, as much as I wish it could have, could have stayed in Atlanta and I can got home, but my body won't do that. It can only be in one place at a time. And Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, is infinite, and eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, power, and truth. And so, but, but His expression physically, which is a part of the second person of the Godhead, His expression physically is a genuine, full human being. He had to be. He could not be our Savior if He were not fully human, normally human. He bled, he hurt, he wept, he was concerned, he spoke, he ate, and his resurrected body had some souped-up characteristics, it could move fast and so forth, but it is the same body. And the author of Hebrews says, I want you to know, your perfect priest is perfect because he is fully human. He is Jesus. He was the priest who was victorious over death, but he is the priest who personally made himself a sacrifice for human beings, and he made that perfect sacrifice because only a human being could do it. Jesus, Jesus then, this Jesus, lives eternally as a fully human being to make intercession for us. The problem was solved by the person and the purpose, number three, was to provide full salvation, provide a whole salvation. Look at verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So remember, this Jesus is a guarantor of better covenant. He doesn't die like other priests. He continues in his office. He is fully human, and as a consequence, he is able to save completely. I've given you verses you can look up later, but uh, look at these uh, very briefly. He's able to save completely, John 17, 21. Save to the uttermost, we might say. 
Then he was able to pray for us and make our prayers effectual. And, and he is not only able to pray for us, he is able to pray for us empathetically. Because our Lord Christ was fully human, fully divine, because he was fully human and he took up all of our diseases. You remember that? He, he was tempted in every point as we are yet without sin. He, <coughs> he experienced everything that a human being could experience, every category of it. Not only physically, but emotionally. Here's a, here's, a, here's a rich way to read the Psalms, for instance. The Psalms, we have indication from Hebrews. The Psalms are the prayers of Christ prayed through the authors of the Psalms. And when we read the, so when we read the Psalms, we read the internal emotional life of our Savior, not just of Asaph and the sons of Korah and David. Think about that the next time you read the Psalms, that you're reading not only the experiences of this man whose name appears at the top, but here you are given the emotional life of Jesus turned inside out, and you're able to, you're able to hear that he experienced betrayal as you are experiencing and what it did to him. He is experiencing the, the felt estrangement from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As you might feel about him. He, he is, when he says, why have you hidden your face? Sometimes you feel that way. When you, when you, you can identify with the psalmist who says, I'm being sucked down into the water and the seaweed is tangled around me and it's choking me. That's your Savior who can identify with you. In Psalm 88 when he says, my, the darkness is my closest friend, that is Christ expressing what it was like to be in the pit under Caiaphas's house. Your Savior, when it says he became sin for you, he took up every part of your humanity. He was tempted and tried in every point as we are yet without sin. He was perfected through suffering. He was done. He was so not just in the last week of his life, but every day of his life. And you have the emotional record of it in the Psalms. He is the one who is able because... He lives forever. He solved the problem of mortal priests because he is a person. He solved the problem of satisfying the need of humans who were, had sinned against God. And because he has totally identified with us, he is able to fulfill his purpose to save us to the uttermost to provide whole salvation. Number four, verse 26, and this... He says, he pauses, and uh, here's a moment of worship, as the psalmist, uh, as the author says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. This, the author in the original uh, pauses, there's, there's a moment of awe. 
when he repeats the things that have gone before in the whole of chapter 7 and then pauses and says, such, such, such a Savior. This Savior is absolutely pure and true. Look at the words he uses. Holy. That means he is in his inner character just like God. This, uh, this word is unique in the, in the New Testament. And uh, in all but a few times, it refers to the character of God. You, you remember in Philippians 2 when it says, when it's talking about the humiliation of Christ, who being in the very nature God, nevertheless became a servant. And the, the language is strong. He, was, he possessed all of the distinguishing characteristics of deity. He was fully God. And chief among those characteristics is that He is holy. Secondly, He is blameless. Now, that word is descriptive of His outward behavior. He is pure. He's undefiled by the world. John said, don't love the world, neither things in the world. So he was living in the world, but he wasn't being pulled along and tainted and conformed to the world. He was pure. He was set apart. We've been talking about that, tempted so that he can sympathize with us. And he still is, by the way. Don't forget that. When he ascended to heaven, remember what the, what the disciples uh, the angels who came to the disciples, and they said, why, why, do you stand there, why do you stand there staring into heaven? This same Jesus will return. So that, that human Christ who still has scars, still has wounds, who can still eat and drink, who can still weep, that same Jesus exists somewhere in God's reality. And in that human form is able to sympathize and empathize with you. Whenever you pray to him, whatever you have to say to him, he is still able to say, I know how that feels. I still know how it feels. And then he is exalted. Ephesians 4.10 said he was exalted above every high place. He holds the highest place in all of uh, created in uh, reality. Now, I want you to notice one more thing in verse 26 before we leave it, where it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those other priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. First of all, somebody tell me what time it is. 708. Uh, we've, been, we've, we've, we've had this earthly Savior described for us. We know our need. We're estranged from God. We're down here. We have the earthly problem. We have a Savior who came to earth and lived in our place died in our place without becoming stained by the earthly problem of sin. And now he ascends to the highest place of the heavens. Why was that, 
Why is that geography important for the author of Hebrews? Why does he, pl- why does he describe the places where the needs and supplies are? I think it's because of this. Now, bear with me. Remember the, remember the Pharisee and the publican who were praying at the wall, at the temple? And, the, and the, uh, uh, the Pharisee said, I thank you, dear God, that I'm not like this poor sap over here, this publican. Uh, I, I, I tithe and I do this and that and I have to do all the sacrifices and I just thank you that I'm not like him. And then the publican, the tax collector, says, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's all he prayed. Have mercy, couldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That publican, it seems to me, was making use of this geography that we find in in Hebrews. Heaven, earth, holiness, earth. We need something in between. Mercy. It's vividly portrayed in the Old Testament and we'll allude to it at the end of this passage on the Day of Atonement. In uh, Leviticus 17, 16, 17, you can read about the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the high priest would make uh, two sacrifices. He would take uh, the blood, uh, he would take uh, one goat and he'd slit his throat and he would pour the blood over the, the seat, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you know what this is because you've watched Indiana Jones. You, you, know, that, you know that little, that little gold box that ends up in the warehouse in the Smithsonian? Uh, <clears throat> a little gold box about three feet long, and it holds the law, and it holds Aaron's rod and other sacred things. But most importantly, it holds the law. And then on the top of the box were two, are two angels that have, that have wings stretched out like this toward each other. And they touch each other. The wings touch. And where the wings touch, that's the mercy seat. So when the high priest would slay the goat or the lamb, he would take the blood and he would cover... That seat, you with me? Cover it with blood. And then the other goats, you know, he would, he, would, uh, he would put the sins on them symbolically and he would send them out over into the wilderness and they would disappear. That was the scapegoat. But the blood on the mercy seat, the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant was within the Holy of Holies, separated by a four-inch curtain. Only the high priest could go in there. He better have done his business with God beforehand or he was going to get struck dead and they'd drag him out with a rope. What is the symbolism that when he finally goes in there and the blood's covering the mercy seat, what is the symbolism? It's geographical, just like we're reading here. God, the Holy One, looks down from heaven onto the people relative to the law. The law is in the box. The law is in the Ark of the Covenant. And he looks down and he's saying, I'm going to evaluate you according to the law. 
but he cannot see it without looking through the mercy seat covered with blood. You got it? God can't see way the people were relative to the law except by looking through the camera, the filter, the atoning work of the blood on the mercy seat. So what's the publican saying? God in heaven, put your mercy in between yourself and me, a sinner. That had to be done every year, every year, every year. But when God, through His Son, came to earth, He lived the law. And He died the penalty of the law. And He spread not a goat's blood, but His own blood, the blood of the last lamb, over the mercy seat He put His mercy in between us and God, and now He is seated on the divine mercy seat at the right hand of the Father, and His whole person intercedes, not just verbally, but personally, physically. The wounds show it. He intercedes constantly for us because He is seated on the mercy seat once for all. Amen? So, Jesus meets our need and does so permanently and perfectly to conclude with these uh, two last things from 27 and 28. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins. And then for those of people, since he did this, what? Once for all, when he offered up himself. It's permanent, once for all. What other sacrifice is he going to bring? His entire body, his entire soul covers the mercy seat. There is nothing left to do. For the law, verse 28, appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. We looked at the the oath last time that God swears on oath. He says, I will, if the covenant, if I break my part of the covenant, I will will cut myself asunder. Well, Christ is the one broken and bleeding, gives evidence of having been broken and bleeding at the right hand of the Father. The covenant was broken. It wasn't broken by God. It was broken by us, but God paid the penalty. And God has done it once and for all, and He has done it through His Son. It's a very important mention of the sonship of the Son because um, there's an interesting passage in in uh, Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 4, we won't take time to look at it now, but where, uh, the, the, where Paul says, he became a son. 
well, if, if Christ is the eternal Son of God, when did He become not a son? Well, remember on the cross when Christ became sin for us. When He hung on the cross and all of the wrath of God due to us for all of our sin is poured out on Him. And He cries out, why hast thou forsaken me? The Father, the Father unsons His Son. His, his Father allowed Him so to identify with us that He became estranged. He became like us, not sons, not a people, strangers to the covenant, foreigners to grace. And when Christ died under the wrath that was due to us, when He died with our sins and descended into hell, that is, with our sins descended into the judgment of God, descended to death, the righteousness of His life that He had earned on earth justified the sin that He had taken from us. And death has no authority over the righteous, over holy people. And when the righteousness of his life was substituted, we say imputed to the record of our sin, then Christ sprang from the earth. Death can't hold. Death has no jurisdiction over pure people. He was resurrected. He was let go of death by death because... He had perfectly made substitution for our righteous, for our sins and earned back, earned back His sonship and not only His sonship, but the sonship that guarantees ours. God, when God said to Christ, you are my son. You have atoned for sins. I had unsunned you. You have become my son through your righteousness. And because you have, you can guarantee the sonship of others. Six more reasons for why Jesus Christ is your perfect, not just a better priest, not any longer a priest like Melchizedek. You know, we haven't mentioned Melchizedek in a long time now because there's nothing more to compare to Melchizedek. Jesus so far outstrips all the previous priests, Melchizedek, and every other comparison. He stands alone as the Son appointed by our Heavenly Father to save us and to save us completely from our sins and into all eternity. Let me quote, what time is it? I got, I got a 30-second story. <clears throat> Years ago, there was a woman in my church who, uh, who uh, came to Christ. It had been years. We had been, her, her daughter was in our church. Her daughter had witnessed to her, but she was, uh, she was a uh, Unitarian. She was a Unitarian. That's what she had become up in the Northeast. So <clears throat> she uh, had dismissed... Christ thought he might have been a good teacher, but uh, he wasn't all that these evangelicals made him out to be. And really, she didn't need him anyway because she was such a good person. 
But the closer she moved to death, the less confidence she had in her own righteousness. It opened her up to new discussions about the gospel. So we spent hours talking to each other. And all of her, she's a, very, she's a brilliant woman, she was a college professor, and she had all these questions about the person of Christ and the, and the reliability of scriptures and so forth. And uh, eventually, her answer, questions were answered, the Spirit moved on her, and she gave her life to Christ. Then she started reading everything that she could, and she was especially interested in Chuck Colson's conversion. Remember Chuck Colson, who was Attorney General under Nixon and and uh, came to Christ during the Watergate scandal and so forth. And uh, Colson uh, uh, wrote his uh, autobiography, Born, Born Again. And she read that. She was very interested in that because she respected him intellectually. And here was an adult who had come to Christ uh, intellectually uh, the way she had. And she read that over and over. She got sick sometime after that, went to the hospital. And... I uh, was really struggling, and <clears throat> the hospital called me one day and said, uh, Pastor, you, you, you need to come here. The family's requested that you come here. Uh, uh, she is um, she's delusional. She can't be comforted. We think the, the family thinks that maybe you could say something to comfort her. So I, I went to her, and, uh, and they said, she keeps saying the strange thing. She keeps saying, there was a law in Virginia. There was a law in Virginia over and over again. We don't, she's never been to Virginia. We don't even know what she's talking about. Well, on the way, I was asking the Lord for insight. And I, I remembered from the Chuck Colson book, remember that the man who led him to Christ, when found out that Colson was going to prison, was the, the man was a lawyer, and he remembered there was a law on the books in Virginia that you could vicariously serve out the sentence of someone else. And so he went to the judge and he said, I want to do that. I, you know, Chuck Colson is a new believer. I don't think he'll make it in prison. I want to serve out his sentence for him. <clears throat> there is this law in Virginia. Well, the, the judge ruled that though it was technically on the books, it no longer had, had standing. So he couldn't make it work. This brilliant woman, thinking back over all her past, remembering all of her sins, all of her denials of Christ, was, and, and had heard me say, Jesus Christ is your perfect high priest. He's made substitution for you. He has substituted his righteousness for yours, passively and actively. She's thinking, but there was a law in Virginia. And somebody tried to use that vicarious principle to stand in for somebody else. What if there is a law in the universe that will not apply to me? What if this thing doesn't work? There was a law in Virginia. I came to a bedside <clears throat> and I said, uh, Miss Esther, I think, I think I know what's troubling you. You're thinking about that law in Virginia that the judge wouldn't apply and that man couldn't serve the sentence for another. But I want to tell you from the book of Hebrews, this isn't a man's law. This is God's law. This is sworn to by an oath on the person of God. 
And the one who has fulfilled it has been exalted to a place that is higher than every other place, higher than every other court, higher than every other realm. And this one has sworn and made promise to you, your sins are forgiven and you will be with Christ forever. She rested. She took communion the next day, died about a week later, never repeating ever again. There was a law in Virginia. She only repeated, Jesus is my Savior. 